Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. Every month, we dive into retirement, healthcare, hot topics and trends, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held. I'm Julie Stick. I'm Ann Patterson. Let's talk benefits. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talking Benefits. I'm Julie Stick. For the past several years, the International Foundation has strategically focused on the topic of retirement security. As you, our listeners, know, one crucial way to help employees reach retirement security is by giving them access to a retirement plan. While many of our listeners do provide a retirement plan, of course, not all employers do, and that's for a multitude of reasons, including cost, administrative complexities, fiduciary liability, high employee turnover, concerns about investing, and most often, they're a small business. For more than 15 years, states and municipalities have been looking at ways to increase the retirement security of their residents. These discussions have included the idea of facilitating and or mandating access to retirement plans through state-run programs. The first state to legislate such a program was California in 2012. The second state was Illinois, with a bill signed by the governor in early 2015. The Illinois Secure Choice Program launched in 2018. As of June 16, 2023, there were 19 states and two cities that have enacted a program, according to Georgetown University's Center for Retirement Initiatives. Some of these programs have been implemented, and some are still in the development stage. With me today to discuss state-facilitated retirement programs, and in particular the Illinois program, are Christine Chang, Director of the Illinois Secure Choice Program, and Kim Olson, Senior Officer on the Retirement Savings Project at the Pew Charitable Trusts. Welcome, both of you, and thank you for being here with me today. Thanks, Julie. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, let's just get started. Maybe to give our audience some background, what are state-facilitated retirement programs, and what are the reasons behind the development of these programs? Sure. So I'm happy to lead off and then have Kim talk as well to sort of expound upon what, what the origin of this is and kind of what the purpose is. So I think really the central issue that we're trying to solve for is how do we address the looming retirement savings crisis? So we have too many people in our country that have too little save for retirement. And in the absence of any sort of federal requirement related to businesses offering retirement plans, many states have taken it upon themselves to enact legislation to try and help address that looming retirement crisis. So in particular, many of the state laws that have driven the creation of what we call state-facilitated retirement programs acknowledge the power of payroll deduction as a way to help people save for retirement. So AARP has shown that workers are 15 times more likely to save for retirement if they can do so at work through payroll deduction. But at the same time, we also know that an estimated 57 million American workers don't have access to a workplace retirement program. And then this retirement savings crisis, it, it has impacts on a lot of different levels. So, you know, on the individual level, it's a very poor outcome for a worker to reach the end of their career and not really have enough to subsist on. 
on a macro level, there is a huge increase to the fiscal burden that states and taxpayers will, will have to bear uh, as more retirees are relying on public assistance as household spending goes down. And then from even an equity perspective, if you look at which workers uh, lack access to a way to save at work, which is an easier way to save for retirement, as we know, those workers are disproportionately workers at small businesses, workers with low wages, workers of color and female workers. Maybe if Kim wants to share a little bit more about from the fiscal side of things, what those impacts are. Sure. You know, I think uh, maybe I'll take it to what types of program models are out there first, because there are three major program types that we've uh, been looking at uh, throughout the, the United States. So the first is this automatic IRA or auto IRA, sometimes called work and save, sometimes called secure choice. It depends on who you're talking to. And Christine's going to describe these in, in further detail, but um, in this model, employees working for an employer that doesn't sponsor a retirement plan are automatically enrolled into the state program, and then they save a portion of their pay into their own individual retirement accounts through payroll deduction. Uh, now, employers without private plans are required to facilitate the state programs, but that just means registering, uploading an employee census, and facilitating payroll deduction. And the employers in these plans, and this is important, are not plan sponsors. The state and a private program administrator are taking on those administrative burdens of running the plan. This is by far the most commonly adopted program type, um, and that seven states have active programs right now. Uh, starting with Oregon, then Illinois and California, and then we had a second tranche that, from Connecticut, Maryland, Colorado, and Virginia. Um, so that's the first program type. The second program type is a multiple employer plan, or a MEP, and that's a retirement plan that's adopted by two or more separate employers. Um, that MEP is organized and run by a sponsor, and they're required to do the administrative duties. And MEPs were created to encourage small businesses to offer private retirement plans by removing some of those administrative and resource hurdles to doing so. We already see many of those in the private sector, but there is one active state-sponsored MEP right now, and that's the Massachusetts Core Plan, but it's very limited to only nonprofits who um, you are working in, in Massachusetts and have fewer than 20 employees. So the reason that state-sponsored MEPs have had less traction is that MEPs are already offered on the private market. So employers already have access to private MEPs. Um, on the, you know, in contrast, the auto IRA programs are, are filling a gap for employers who, for whatever reason, can't um, offer that a type of retirement plan. And the final bit is the retirement marketplace. That is an idea to have the state undertake some sort of vetting of private plans, uh, for instance, to ensure that fees are below a certain threshold and then create a website where private plan providers who pass um, this, this vetting can uh, advertise to employers. The only active marketplace in operation is in Washington state. And this is again, a less popular model because employers, they have access to this information directly from providers. And we haven't seen a noticeable change in the number of employers providing private plans in Washington state, meaning that that marketplace doesn't appear to be moving the needle on retirement access. Well, thank you both for setting the stage here. And Christine, you shared, of course, the problem of not enough people having a retirement account. Um, Kim, can you share some additional financial perspectives? For example, I think Pew has done some recent research on what retirement income shortfalls could mean for federal and state budgets moving forward. Absolutely. So Pew commissioned a study from eConsult Solutions to look at the fiscal impact of insufficient retirement savings. 
That study is titled The Cost of Doing Nothing, and it looks at both the federal level and each of the 50 states to determine what the future may hold for state and federal budgets if we choose not to act. The headline for that is that the fiscal costs of insufficient savings are estimated at a combined $1.3 trillion over the next 20 years. And that figure includes more than $330 billion in state costs alone. But let me break that down. So first I would say we're in the middle of a demographic shift. In the next 20 years, the 65 plus population is projected to increase about 50% from 54.1 million to 81.5 million people. And then the, we will have fewer working age households to support those elderly households. That ratio is going to increase significantly over the next 20 years. And at the same time, like as if we can add more and more pieces to this, at the same time, people are just not saving enough to meet their future needs. Um, and the average retiree is projected to come up short by about $7,000 a year in 2040. So if we do nothing, and if we stay the course and we don't expand opportunities to saving, those fiscal impacts on state and federal budgets are going to be immense. And program expenditures uh, for social assistance programs are going to grow significantly as those elderly residents rely on those programs. And that's where that $1.3 trillion number is coming from. But there's good news. I'm going to let it like we're going to put some sunshine on this. There's good news. If families begin saving about $140 a month over the next 30 years, they'll generate enough additional income to fill that $7,000 annual gap. And that's going to reduce pressure on social assistance programs and hopefully mitigate or even eliminate that $330 billion increase in state social assistance budgets. And the state program data in Oregon, Illinois, and California show us that those average contributions are about $130 to $170 a month. So this is not only just possible, it's already happening in some states. Well, thanks for ending on a more positive note, because it was looking pretty bleak there um, <laughs> as you were sharing that data. So, Christine, let's talk a little bit about the Secure Choice program. Of the three program models that Kim described, she mentioned certainly that the auto IRA program model is the most commonly used, and that's what Illinois chose. So can you share um, how a little bit about how this model works for your state and, and why Illinois chose that, and has it been a successful model? Sure, happy to. So, you know, as noted, the auto IRA model is by far the most dominant, you know, of the 19 states that have enacted programs, 15 of them are using that auto IRA model. And I think the real reason is it's always paired with a state law that really puts front and center the need for employers to put in a way for their employees to easily save for retirement at work. So that underlying state law is really saying you need to provide a way and, and be that through the private market, be that through using the state program, please employers do something to give your employees a way to save. So I think that, again, the underlying state law is really what's helping to move the needle with these auto IRA program models. So looking at across the different states that do offer an auto IRA model, you see a lot of common features. So as Kim described it, employers who don't sponsor their own workplace retirement plans, they need to make sure their employees are automatically enrolled in the state program. And once that employee is enrolled, they're then able to save a portion of their pay through payroll deduction to help fund their own individual retirement account or IRA. It's key to note here that employees always maintain control of their 
their accounts. They can choose to opt out if they so choose. They could also choose to later come back into the program if they had opted out earlier. The programs all have defaults that are built in, for instance, a default contribution rate or default investment option. And the reason for that is that um, these programs want to accommodate an employee who may want to take kind of a set it and forget it type approach. Although it's key to remember, again, that the employee always maintains control of their account if they want to customize anything, change their contribution rate, name beneficiaries, uh, change their investment options, they're always in control, they can always do that. The default uh, IRA type that's used across these programs is a Roth IRA, which is to say an IRA funded with after-tax contributions. There are a few reasons why the Roth is the most, is set up as a default IRA type, one of which is that a participant can withdraw their contributions without tax penalty because they've already paid tax on those contributions. And we know that there are workers in our programs that will experience financial shocks that may need to dip into their retirement savings to be able to weather those shocks. And so that uh, ability to withdraw contributions without tax penalty is a really important feature. The other thing, too, that you'll see very commonly across these different auto IRA programs is there's a deliberately limited set of investment options. And a lot of this is about keeping it very simple and digestible in terms of what participants can choose between, um, but still offering a variety of options to meet different risk tolerances. Uh, and the other thing, too, is, again, with the vehicle of savings here being an individual retirement account, this account belongs to the worker. It is not tied to their employer. Therefore, this account is portable. It can move with the worker as they may take on multiple jobs simultaneously, as they may move from one job to another. That account is always theirs. They can always fund it on their own. If they were to separate from an employer, that account is still their account and can always stay with them. Uh, another thing, too, as, uh, as Kim highlighted earlier, with an auto IRA model, the employer who's facilitating employee participation in the program is not a plan sponsor. They do not have fiduciary responsibility. The role that the employer is playing is strictly an administrative one. They're not making decisions about how this program uh, plays out on the investment managers, investment performance, any of that. That's not the role that they play. They're not considered a plan sponsor. Additionally, an employer who's facilitating the program does not incur any fees for, for participating in the program, and they also are prohibited from making matching contributions. Thanks for sharing all of that. I mean, I know certainly um, you mentioned the set it and forget it model. I know a lot of employees appreciate that, right? They want to save, but they're also trying to just do the what they know to do. And also you'd mentioned the kind of defined number of, of investment options. We know that if somebody is offered 20 or more different options, it just, it make someone freeze a little bit, right? So having mm -hmm. a few defined ones they can choose from makes a lot of sense. So thanks for giving us that background. Can you share uh, a bit about how the Illinois program works and, and what you've seen happen with it? Sure. So in Illinois, the, the underlying state law, which is the Illinois Secure Choice Savings Program Act, it applies to private sector employers who are operating in Illinois, who have been in business for at least two years, and that had at least five Illinois employees in the previous calendar year. So per that state law, those covered employers need to take action by a certain deadline that's determined by statute to either 
tell us that they're already sponsoring a qualified retirement plan or to start that onboarding process to get Illinois Secure Choice in place so their employees have a way to save at work. So we have been rolling this program out uh, sort of in phases since the program first launched in 2018. We've been onboarding employers in waves based on employer size. So we started with the largest segment of employers back in that first year in 2018. And then year to year, we've been moving on to smaller and smaller size businesses. So 2023 represents kind of, I guess you would say, the final onboarding wave in a certain sense. We're welcoming employers that had five to 15 Illinois employees in the previous year. So the smallest uh, segment, or the, well, I guess the smallest sized employers, the largest segment by volume. There are a lot of small businesses in, in Illinois. Um, so the way our program works is, you know, the default uh settings for an employee in the program would be that they would save 5% of their gross pay. Again, they're able to move that up or down and can contribute up to any IRS annual contribution limit for a Roth IRA. Um, the default investment option is that for the first 90 days, uh, the money is held in a money market fund to ensure that no capital is lost. And then after that 90-day period, the funds are swept into a target date retirement fund that most closely matches the year when the saver is expected to turn age 65. Again, the saver can choose from three other investment options if they want to. I will say the vast majority of our participants just stick with the default and they're in those target date retirement funds. Uh, we do have an option for employees, or I guess workers, I should maybe more accurately say, who are not working for a covered employer, they can self-enroll in the program if they want to. So again, that would include people who work for an employer that doesn't facilitate Illinois Secure Choice. This would also include a self-employed worker who is their own employer, actually. So that's also another option. Uh, those, I think, are mostly the main points, but certainly let me know if there's any other questions you might have about Secure Choice, Illinois Secure Choice specifically. No, that was all the, the questions that I had um, about the design of the program. And so what have you seen as, as this program has been rolled out since 2018? Have people been great about staying in or have they been opting out? Are employers participating and in, in being uh, you know, willing to do that? We've seen a pretty good response, you know, since the state law was enacted and since the program launched in 2018. I think initially there were concerns that, well, there were a lot of different types of concerns too. So I guess I'll speak to a couple of those. One was, you know, this question of, is this putting too large of a burden on employers? And there was a lot of concern about, is this just asking too much? And, and really, we haven't seen that, you know, we've talked about this before, that the employer is playing a very administrative role. Their administrative lift is meant to be light. They're really just as we'll talk, you know, we've talked about, they're registering for the program, they're uploading a roster of eligible employees. And when those employees stick with the program and want to save through this program, that employer is facilitating their payroll deductions, remitting those contributions so that savers can fund their own IRAs. Um, you know, we've had over 9,700 employers register since the program launched. We have 124,000 savers in the program who their assets are now about 125 million. Uh, so, you, you know, the average account is about $1,000 at this point. Um, you know, savers are saving on average about 145 dollars per month. Um, so we've really been encouraged by the interest in this program. And I think also, and I know Kim will talk about this a little bit more, the underlying state law doesn't say you have to facilitate 
participation in the state retirement program. It also says, you know, if you want to go the private option, please do that. If that's a better fit for where you are, your administrative capacity, your objectives, what you really want to get done with retirement at work. Um, and so we know that this has really spurred some employers to take on their own and sponsor their own private plans, which to us, an increase in coverage is what we were going for. If that's through the private option, if that's through the public option, either way, that's helping us to meet our objectives. So we've been really pleased with it. And, and to the point of sort of employer response, what we've been hearing, I think, especially more lately as the labor market has been really tight, is that especially smaller employers have said that to them, the ability to offer a way to an easy way to save for retirement at work helps to add to their benefits package and helps make them a more attractive employer to a prospective new hire who's really has their pick in a lot of ways of, of different job offers. So we had one employer who described it, Illinois Secure Choice as being another arrow in the quiver of benefits that he can offer to help differentiate himself from another employer who might be seeking the same talent. In terms of, you know, employee participation, uh, we, like a lot of the other programs, have seen that about 66 or 67 percent of eligible employees are staying in this program. Um, I know there were there were concerns when these programs first started. If we're looking at workers with lower wages, are they really going to be able to take advantage of this? Are they really going to be able to start to, to build that nest egg? And the answer is yes. I mean, certainly there are situations where, uh, you know, somebody's income is not high enough to, to offset their expenses. And of course, that's a different scenario in terms of you have to meet today's needs before you think about tomorrow. But I think what you're seeing here with the participation across these state programs, there was a desire to save, but maybe the mechanism wasn't really there. And so I think this is really opening up the door for those savers to have an easy way to do it and to really achieve some of those retirement goals that they have. That's really great news. Um, it is interesting because as, as we know, if you can even put a little bit away, you don't necessarily miss it from your paycheck today, right? But it can it can grow and, and build into a nest egg for you. So it's really interesting. Um, and and really, and, and we know our listeners know certainly the role that employee benefits play, play in both a, an attraction recruitment device for employees and a retention device, especially in labor markets like today. So that's interesting. Quiver into uh into their their uh, listing of what they've got available. That's great. Um, and, and Christine, you had mentioned that uh, there's administrative ease for the employers in Illinois that choose to be involved in this, but they do have to facilitate the payroll deduction. Are there any other types of like reporting or filings that they need to do? No, they don't have any filing requirements. You know, I know in the you know, the 401k space, there are annual filing requirements that have to be done with Department of Labor, et cetera. The, the, again, for an employer who's facilitating uh, one of these state programs, they're not a plan sponsor, thus they don't have any of those filing requirements. Um, again, really the, the main tasks that uh, a facilitating employer would have for a state program. Number one, just registering for the program and getting their account set up online. Number two, uploading that roster of eligible employees. Number three, if they have employees who want to save through the state program, making sure they're doing the payroll deductions each pay period, remitting those contributions to the program administrator, which is again our, our third party kind of private sector uh, financial services provider, making sure that the funds that have been deducted from paychecks are 
are then moving into the IRAs for these savers. The other thing too, just from an ongoing basis is roster maintenance, right? When you have new hires, adding them in and uploading their names, when you have people that leave or separate, marking those employees in, as inactive. So those are really the core administrative tasks. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so Kim, I know that Pew has done a couple of surveys where they went out to look at how these programs are working. And you've done one of employers in the Oregon Saves program, and then you've gone out to Savers in the Illinois Secure Choice program. Can you share what uh, your findings came up with? Sure. Pew conducted surveys of employers in Oregon Saves. Uh, that was in 2019 and 2020, and then employees in the Illinois Secure Choice program in 2020 and 2021. Um, and then the Oregon survey, this was um, about 2,500 private sector businesses participating in Oregon saves that were surveyed. Uh, and we had some really interesting key findings. I think specifically when we talk about a government program, like, a, like generally when we, when we talk about government programs, like a lot of times the customer experience is not really there. But what we found when we, inter we interviewed these employers, 73% uh, of the employers were either satisfied or neutral with their experience in the program. And smaller employers were more likely to say that they were satisfied with the program. And this kind of jives with this idea that the small employers had traditionally not been able to offer this benefit. So the fact that they, that they were able to offer a benefit to their employees without having to go out and, and, and get one um, kind of speaks to why, why they were so satisfied with the program. Um, and also to, to what Christine noted earlier about um, costs. So the, the program itself is, is to be offered at no cost for the employer. So the employer um, doesn't, it doesn't have to pay anything and the employer cannot match. Um, so we asked these over Oregon Saves employers, you know, did you incur any costs when you were uh, implementing Oregon Saves? And about 80% of those employers said they had no out-of-pocket costs whatsoever. And those that did say they had some out-of-pocket costs would cite, um, you know, upgrading to an external payroll firm or bookkeeper or potentially some additional staff time to set up the program or, or to run the payroll deductions, but really very minimal uh, and, and certainly not as much as it would cost um, to, to you know, be an employer-sponsored plan. Now, on the Illinois side, uh, the survey for employees covered about 1,200 respondents, uh, and those were people who were eligible to participate in the program. So we interviewed people who, uh, both, both those that participated and those that opted out. Um, approximately four in 10 of those uh, interviewed said that the program has helped their financial security. And I think that that's, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like it's not, you know, it's not the majority, but we're talking about people who'd only been involved in this program about one or two years at that point. So the idea that even just having been able to save for a year or two was helping them feel more financially secure is actually a, a pretty impressive finding. Um, but I think what's even more impressive is that 96% of the participants said that they were satisfied or neutral about their program experience. So those who chose to stay, 96% of them said either I was very satisfied with this or at least neutral. And only 5% or just a little, yeah, a little less than 5% said they were dissatisfied. So again, really impressive findings for, um, for a program, uh, particularly a government program, just you know, based on uh, where things are, are at right now with government trust. So if we combine the Oregon Saves results from the employers um, and these results, I think this is really suggests that the satisfaction is strong for both businesses and employees that are participating in the auto IRA programs. Those are impressive statistics for new programs like that. So Kim, one of the um, 
concerns that's been expressed about these state facilitated programs is that, and, and you alluded to this earlier, Christine, once a state adopts a public program like this, will private employers in the state just decide to get rid of their existing private plan? Would they terminate that plan and instead go into the state or public plan? Has that been shown to happen? Right. Well, this was an argument against the state programs that we heard in the early days, uh, namely that the programs would compete with the private sector. So our team at Pew decided to see if we could see that playing out in the data. Um, And to do that, we looked at the Form 5500 data, which is a form that private businesses have to file annually with the federal government if they have an employer-sponsored retirement plan. Um, And as noted, the state programs have an employer requirement. Uh, So if the employers don't offer a private plan, they're required to begin offering the state program by a certain date. So armed with that knowledge, we were able to look at the data in those three early adopter states, Oregon, Illinois, and California, uh, to see what the private market looked like both before the requirement went into place and then after the requirement went into place. Um, And in all three states, we saw an increase in private plan creation immediately following that state deadline uh, or the multiple state deadlines, honestly. Um, And then plan terminations remained either at or below the national average in all three states. So, you know, we've been tracking this data for about three years and that 5,500 data is always behind. So we can only see up to 2021 right now. Um, but I would note that an exciting corollary to these findings is that the, um, the private plan creation rate in all three states remains higher now than it was before the state programs went into effect. So for now, at least, we're not seeing just a one-time spike, a bump, um, but kind of a lasting effect on the private market. At Pew, we're a little reticent to claim a causal relationship just yet, uh, but it really does appear that the, the state deadlines are acting as, as a kind of decision point, at least for the private employers. So if they've, you know, if you have a private employer who's been procrastinating or has just been thinking about starting a plan but hadn't quite gotten there yet, uh, this may be just serving as that nudge to, um, you know, to go out and get one on their own. And uh, what we're also seeing is that the private market is kind of getting in on the action as well. We're seeing private companies who offer 401ks and and private plans marketing their wares and using those state deadlines in their own advertising. So, um, you know, as opposed to competing against the private sector, it does very much appear that the programs are complementary, not in competition. Well, that is definitely positive news. I mean, as the three of us, you know, we're obviously here because we believe in the importance of retirement security and financial security. So um, having access to a retirement plan, whether it's, as you said, Christine, right? Good, good. If they decided to, instead of using the public plan, go and create their own private plan, that's terrific, right? Let's just increase coverage. Um, So that's really, that's encouraging news. On that note, do either of you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with us before we close the episode? I mean, I guess I know we kind of highlighted that the there is this looming retirement crisis and, you know, there's a lot of sort of that bad news kind of hanging around our environment these days. But I think what's this glimmer of hope is really saying here with the, the action, the activity, the interest you're seeing from multiple states now and, and many states already, as you know, have enacted programs. We're really just underscoring to workers, everyone deserves a chance to build their future. Everyone deserves the opportunity to 
uh, have increased retirement security to retire with dignity. It doesn't matter what your pay grade is. It doesn't matter what type of work you do, what industry you're in. A lot of the participants that we have now are in industries that traditionally didn't have an option to save for retirement at work. And I think we're saying to them, you deserve an equal chance at retirement security as the person who's making half a million dollars, uh, you know, over on Wall Street. So I think it's really saying there is a big crisis that we all need to work together to help and address, but there's absolutely an interest to do it. And there are ways to do it. That was really well put, Christine. I mean, I think, you know, like I, to only add to that, I just, I, I think that by uh, creating a system whereby every employer has to offer something, we create a floor. We create a basic like option where everyone has the opportunity to save at work. Um, and if we see those employers start to upgrade and start to offer a 401k or a more robust robust retirement savings mechanism, everyone wins. So, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the employer wins because they can offer more and they can recruit and retain workers. The employee wins because they're able to save and maybe eventually they're going to get an employer match so that they'll have more, even more money in their account. And then the taxpayer wins because we're, you know, we're not going to be seeing a huge number of people retire and end up on taxpayer-funded government programs. So I think this is a win-win-win for everyone, um, which is why we're we're here today to talk about it. Wonderful summation. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you both spending time with me today to, to talk about this and your insights and resources have been really helpful. So thank you very much. And on behalf of my co-hosts, Justin Held and Ann Patterson, Thank all of you for listening, and we will be back in your podcast feeds next month. Want to learn more about this and other important benefits-related topics? International Foundation members now have exclusive access to the Benefits Knowledge Center. It's a valuable perk that provides members with three ways to get information, personalized research, instant resources, and a platform to connect with industry peers. Find out more at ifebp.org slash Benefits Knowledge Center. And if you're not a member already, you can join at ifebp.org slash membership. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And subscribe to the show in your podcast app so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Talking Benefits is a production of the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, the largest educational association for those working in the benefits industry. If you're into benefits, check out all that the International Foundation has to offer at ifebp.org. Our show is hosted by Julie Stick, Ann Patterson, and me, Justin Held. Produced by Stacey Von Alstein and edited by Amanda Gilsmer. Today's program is copyrighted in 2023 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, all rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.